Got it. Cool. Right. Got it. Let's rock and roll. All right. It's episode 324 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's episode, that kicks off our first in a four-part series of Is Bourbon Broken? Here's your weekly bourbon news update. The Speed Art Museum's annual bourbon auction called The Art of Bourbon will auction off some of the world's most hard-to-find whiskeys, and it's going to be taking place on September 23rd from 7 p.m. to 8.45 p.m. Eastern. Among the bottles is a rare and numbered Van Winkle Family Reserve 15-year from the 90s, it has a value of around $12,500. There's also an Old Forester Brown Foreman 150th Special Edition Birthday Bourbon that was bottled specifically for Brown Foreman's 150th anniversary, was only made available for the distiller's family members, and was never sold to retail. There's also a bottle from the 1940s and 1950s of private stock from Park and Tilford, a Woodford Reserve Baccarat Edition bottle, and an impossible-to-find 21-year collector's edition distilled and bottled by Dowling Distillers that has an estimated value of around $7,000. There's also several exclusive experiences that allow bidders to win their own private barrel selections as well. The auction is free to bid, but registration is required at artofbourbon.org. A few weeks ago, I talked about Maker's Mark having a new rental in Bardstown called the Samuels House, and it's been inside the Samuels family for a very long time. And the whole house is filled with Maker's Mark artifacts, it's now available for overnight accommodations starting at $1,000 per night and can sleep up to a total of eight guests. There's also a one-of-a-kind add-on experiences that can be included as well with tours of the distillery, dinner pairings prepared from our friend of the show, Chef Newman, and one-on-one -on -one time with the former Maker's Mark chairman and history buff himself, Bill Samuels Jr. The University of Kentucky's College of Agriculture is leading a team of industry collaborators on a project that's going to provide the industry with more information to improve the efficiency of barrel production. And this is gonna be focused on stave drying or what's also called outdoor seasoning. So while it's good for bourbon flavor, outdoor drying can also create some problems. There's these things called checks or what are also known as larger cracks in the staves. And that can increase the barrel's potential to leak and also increase the amount of bourbon that's lost in evaporation during aging, which we all know is called the angel share. This research will measure the rate of evenness of drying that directly influences stave degradation they're going to do this by providing detailed data on how faster drying contributes to checks and cracks in degrading development. And Brown Foreman Stave Facility in Jackson, Ohio will be providing eight stacks of white oak staves at three specific times during the year. So during stack construction, researchers will measure the initial weight of the staves. That's going to calculate the initial moisture content. And then it's going to continually examine and weigh them over a period of six months. So we'll see in six months and see if there's any new updates. And now moving on to bourbon release news. Kentucky Owl is announcing the release of the Wise Man Bourbon. It's the first Kentucky straight bourbon that's been produced and distilled by Kentucky Owl, but also in collaboration with Bardstown Bourbon Company. The product is a blend of Kentucky Owl four-year-old wheat and high rye bourbons, along with a five-and-a-half-year and eight-and-a-half-year-old Kentucky sourced bourbon. This is the first Kentucky Owl release under the new master blender, John Rhea, who began back in June where he previously served at Four Roses as the chief operating officer. The Wise Man Bourbon is bottled at 90.8 proof and will retail for around $60. Blade & Bow is re-releasing its highly sought after 22-year-old Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 
It will be available in 19 markets, as well as on-site at Stitzelweller and the Distillery's Garden and Gun Club in Louisville, Kentucky, but only while supplies last. And Four Roses is extending its lineup of retail offerings with the launch of 50ml bottles. So they can be coming in two of their different bourbons, which is Small Batch and Small Batch Select, and those will be available in regions where it's already available. So welcome to this first part in a series of Is Bourbon Broken? where we take an in-depth look at a multi-part blog series that originated from Bourbon & Banter. Through these four parts, we're going to take a look at a few different things. First is the consumer, then we're going to look at the secondary market, then we're going to examine retailers and distributors, and then wrap it up once again by looking back at the consumer. In this first part, as I mentioned, we look at the consumer, and we think to ourselves, are everyday bourbon drinkers the ones to blame for really what's happening? What compels people to stand in line for blends? And ultimately, what can we all do as bourbon enthusiasts to educate the broader mass market? Well, enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Dave Baldwin, who writes me on fredminnick.com. Uh, we all know the definition of bourbon, and he goes on to you know cite the definition of bourbon, 51% corn, all the distillation stuff, and new charred oak container, an emphasis on new charred oak container. Dave further comments, I keep thinking about charred new oak containers. Are there any distilleries aging on an oak container that are not barrels? Why did the federal government choose to say containers? and not barrel. Well, what a great question you have asked me here, Dave. I appreciate that. Uh, so a couple of things. One, there have been some square containers developed in the past. Uh, they were popularized by uh, Spanish brandy makers and Spanish winemakers. Uh, in Spain, they had kind of a fascination with, uh, with square barrels which to me is kind of a, an oxymoron, a square barrel. Hmm. But, I mean, they're not very popular, but, but they are used. And the container situation was basically, you know, it's on the books like that, but everyone's always practiced and used as barrels. But barrels is, you know, there was an effort to try and define what a barrel is. And there was a time that a whiskey distiller would not consider a five-gallon barrel to be a barrel. It would be like a jug, a wooden jug or something. And so there's just always been kind of like this, like hands up to keep it as container. And it ends up being a good part of the, you know, American whiskey conversation. You know, Jimmy Russell, you know, God bless him, the great master distiller from Wild Turkey, celebrating 67 years as the master distiller there, by the way. He used to go around telling people that you could create a charred oak bucket and go over there and fill it up at the still and uh, and then dump it five seconds later and call it bourbon. Because in addition to that definition that describes that, you know how it should be made, there is no age uh, restriction on it. So you can age uh, bourbon for literally a second in a new charred oak container and get rid of the new charred oak container and call that bourbon. So that is, that's, I kind of like the, the word container because it gives us something fun to talk about, but there are indeed other vessels uh, that can be used, that have been used. They're just not very common. 
but you know you want to you want to keep that open in the event that someone creates a, a large vat you know so an open vat one day we're, we're going to see a charred oak vat that is open and allows like open um it allows the the water to basically you know, disseminate and that's going to come eventually at some point but so there's going to be other vessels that come around so Keeping it open like that with container, I think, is best for the long haul of bourbon. But if they change it to barrel, also, yeah, whatever. That's what everybody's using anyway. So, well, that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you want to be like Dave Baldwin, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click that contact button and send me your idea for Above the Char to be read on Bourbon Pursuit. If I like the question, I'll read it. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny, Ryan, and Fred here today, and we're going to be tackling a new series on Is Bourbon Broken? And credit for this actually goes to Brent Joseph. He was a contributing writer to Bourbon and Banter, and it's going to be a four-part series where we're going to evaluate Brent's opinion on the piece, Is Bourbon Broken? And we're going to add our own commentary and expand even further on on where we see bourbon trending. So in today is part one of the series of Is Bourbon Broken? 
And we're going to talk about the consumer. So in Brent's article, he talked about Eagle Rare being on the shelf at Total Wine for price of $28.99 with a sign next to it that says one per customer per day. He noticed people in the sales aisle scooping them up and even asking the employees if there's more in the back. He then proceeded to hand them out to friends that were called to come in and even pick up even more of them. Brent wrote that people were so excited, it's like they had spotted Bigfoot for the first time. All this just for a bottle of Eagle Rare. In this episode, we're going to look at the consumer and how the consumer of the average bourbon drinker has changed over time and how they've created this problem for themselves. I really like how you just read that story. I was like, ooh, that's Kenny Reed stories. So, uh, story time should... <laughs> with Kenny Coleman, everybody. <laughs> like, keep going. Really setting the scene here. And and really, I think that's what we want to do is, is kind of look at in this four-part series is how how has everything changed and, and really is bourbon broken? We're going to try to find some silver lining when we start doing this as well. Yeah. But and, for all of us too, I kind of want to start at the beginning and look at the rise and the popularity of bourbon. So Ryan, I'll, I'll put it to you first. So kind of a softball here. What do you think are some of the, the biggest factors that have kind of grown bourbon to, to where it is today? Uh, you know, my, my initial thought is probably, well, I grew up around this stuff, so nobody really cared about it. So it's, it's really still weird for me to see the popularity of it. Not, and I'm not sure it's broken, but we're definitely going through growing pains and, uh, it's, you know, the industry just wasn't prepared for, it. but probably the rise, there's many factors, but Cocktail culture, to me, like Don Dra- seeing Don Draper, you know, and Mad Men, uh, that it, hell, it even motivated me to start looking at old fashions again or different cocktails. You know, you go out to bars and restaurants, you're trying different things. And then, if not, then the second biggest is probably social media. I mean, just being able to post your finds, post what bottles you're drinking, posting. It's just, it, social media is one of those things. It's like it's a highlight reel of your best moments in life, and bourbon's no different. You know, you can highlight the the pick you just found, or my epic pours, and my my crazy collection. Look how great this and that, and all that stuff is. And it's it kind of gives you FOMO, and, and then you got to get more and more to kind of be the, the the best Instagrammer. You know, have the coolest photos, and it kind of just creates that desire and need. But uh, two, I think it, it was kind of a perfect storm, like because the bourbon industry wasn't prepared for this growth, there's that rarity uh, aspect of it that they didn't have enough product. And so even though you have all this growth and people wanting more, they couldn't get their hands on it. So it kind of gives it, people love scarcity. And so if you have scarcity, people are going to gravitate towards that because I've always said bourbon is the perfect product because each barrel is individual, it's unique, and you can sell it that way. And two, if you don't have the juice to sell, people are just like, Ooh, it's rare and this and that. And then, but once you're in the industry and you walk through a warehouse, you're like, well, it's just another bottle of whiskey. But uh, yeah, I, I think there's multifactors factors that did that, but that's kind of where I would gravitate towards. Would you think that Fred Minnick is the reason that bourbon is as big as it is today? <laughs> well, there's definitely a Fred Minnick effect. I've noticed in my own Total Wine or any liquor stores, it was, it was with, you know, rum. I was trying to get off bourbon because I was pissed off at it. And then I was like, Ooh, I have this nice category of rum. And then Fred starts talking about rum and now I can't get the rum I want anymore, you know, so there's definitely that too. And you, and you know, us, the media is probably, you know, I, I don't want to take all of them away, but, uh, well, you know, I, I, I look at it like one of the things about this category is we love to complain. We love to complain in this category 
and it's and it's it's pretty unique because you know you see it a little bit in tequila. Um, you don't really see it as much in in the higher end wines because that's people are priced out. And what bourbon is and why everything is changing is it's a price discussion. And uh, bourbon is absolutely 1000% broken from a pricing structure. And it goes all the way back to the 1940s when the distilleries tried to get together and fix the prices and the, and the Senate had all these judicial hearings and broke it up. Pappy Van Winkle ironically was basically telling everybody that the uh, big distillers are uh, outpricing or underpricing everybody and hurting the category. And he was trying to stop like price fixing. And so the from that point on, you had uh, you know laws came into effect where distillers uh, could no longer tell a retailer how to price the product. You know, so whereas like Mac, if anyone sells an Apple computer, uh, they get told, "Uh, uh, uh, you can't mark it up. This is the price, and that's it." With bourbon, it is up to the retailer to price it how they want. Now things can change backdoor here and there, but that's that's how it is on the books. The retailer or the distillers cannot influence that. And so the rise of bourbon, you know, does begin uh, in the 1980s when it's basically left for dead. Yeah, I think uh, you wrote a book about this. Yeah, right? a little bit. Yeah, a little. A few, a little. <laughs> I mean, sorry, you know how I am. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get going on this stuff. I just don't shut up, but. Uh, you know, Japan starts drinking bourbon at a high level and uh, creates this uh, demand over there. And so all of these products like Blanton's, Booker's, Noah's Mill, all developed uh, for the Japanese market. The Japanese market busts in the ni- early 1990s. At the same time, they're starting, uh, starting to see trickles of people travel to Kentucky just to visit the distilleries, the bourbon trail. Then you have the internet come on. Uh, then you have like Whiskey Magazine. Uh, whiskey advocate, then malt advocate come on. So you start seeing little trickles of media. Then you start seeing things like uh, straightbourbon.com comes out in uh, 1999. And you have like this groundswell of all these people getting into it. And Weller 12-year-old was 20 bucks. And that was the that was where things were. And as the as this as that spread, uh, we went with things grew to like where we were meeting at a gazebo at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. Uh, and then as that spread, Facebook groups come on, all of these things start coming on. And that's fantastic. More people are into it. But what's happening for the first time in bourbon history is that so many people are coming on, retailers are making decisions to uh, increase prices. And there's and this is going to be in an upcoming episode, the secondary market is created, but all of these prices continue to rise and it's pricing out consumers uh, and then you have new brands come onto market, and they're coming in at two hundred bucks, while Knob Creek is still thirty, thirty-five. And so, what we have here, where bourbon is broken, is that it is a pricing situation. And I'm not an economist. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to fix this other than get people together uh, and do something illegal and like say, hey, we can't go over this price. But that's that's. To me, that is where bourbon is broken. Yeah, that's, it's that's a, a pricing situation. I've never really thought about it from that angle, but that's a good po- good point because with bourbon, it has such a it had such a low cost of entry to get into it. You know, an expensive scotch or expensive wine collecting, you know, you're up in thousands and thousands and thousands. And even now, you know, if you want what's allegedly the world's best bourbon, Pappy Van Winkle, you're you're paying, you know, two thousand bucks for a secondary market. But more or less you're gonna pay 
somewhere in the few hundred dollar range is like a really, really, really premium bourbon. And then you're probably mid to, you know, it's going to be 50 to $60, which are great. So it's, it's got a low cost of entry. So that also makes it appealing too. I never thought about it from that aspect. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's like people would, uh, um, you know, to start in cognac, you know, a VS bottle would have been, you know, 40 bucks, like a good VS bottle or VSOP would have been 55 bucks, you know, but back in the day, I mean, back, we're talking 1999, uh, to 2005, you could buy Weller 12 year old for 22, 25 bucks. Um, hell you could buy the Elijah Craig, like 18 and twenties for like what? 35, 40 bucks. Exactly. And I thought like, holy shit, I'm blowing my whole, my whole paycheck That's on exactly it. exactly <laughs> right. And so when you really look at what what is bourbon and then going back, and I want to applaud Brent for writing that story, it actually reminds me of how I used to be in liquor stores. I would be holed up at a liquor store for very early in my career, just watch people and how they made their purchasing decisions. And so I applaud that story that he did. And it it is going back to the very beginning of that story, he talked about Eagle Rare being $28 or something like that. And you have new products uh, like um, uh, Jim Rutledge's uh, Blue Run, good bourbon, 150 200 to 250 bucks. You have Kentucky Owls that uh, are coming out of the gate with a $1,000 SRP. And I want to ask the question, is it better than that $28 Eagle Rare? Uh, I would say if it is, it's not by much. And and that is what the problem is. Is the problem is is that distilleries continue to inaccurately, you know, SRP their products, but at the same time they hold on to this dream and hope that somebody can fall in love and afford the bourbon. And so you have two sides of here. You have one is that the market is no longer in 2005 pricing, but you have these distilleries who still dream and hope that it can stay that way. And it gets it gets the retailers either mark it up or people are buying it and you know flipping it. Of course, for sure. That's yeah. the next episode. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that too. It, it is fascinating because bourbon has been priced so low, and then these distilleries are cranking out so much juice in anticipation of it being there. So it's like they're kind of like strapped hold. They're like, all right, we need to hang on to these prices because here in the future we're going to have so much product sell. We don't want to price out our cons- everyday consumers, and that's. What I assume most brands want is an everyday consumer that they want, you know, your Buffalo Traces, Eagle mm-hmm, Rare, you know, right. those pr- products to be, because that's where it's scalable. That's what makes the most money. You know, limited releases are nice and all, but they're, they're more of a pain in the ass than anything. And so mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of in that uh, quandary too. It's like, okay, we have this really rare product now. We should rate price it. But here in the future, we're going to have a bunch. So we don't want to like price ourselves too far out of there. Yeah, and I think that's right. And I don't think there's a there's there's not a a template for going from uh basically, you know, 15% demand to like 200% demand in a in what would be in business would be overnight if you look at it from a, you know, 5 to 10 year uh process because what we're talking about here, we're talking about the supply today is would have been for Eagle Rare would have been two th- the the demand of 2011. Because it's a ten-year-old product, and so the forecasting for this becomes extremely difficult. And the greatest forecaster of bourbon in in history was Bill Samuels Jr. That man could could he can like spot a trend, see where it's going, and know exactly what to do with Maker's Mark in five years. And that's when you know when he gets out of the game a little bit, you start seeing some shortages because he was so good 
at forecasting that stuff. And that is that it in itself is like right now the the demand that they're cranking up. This is a this is a 2035 problem. This is a 2030 problem. You know, you know, so today's bourbon is for 2030 or if it's a nine year old. So I, I think that um, that solution is it's not an easy one, but it is the pricing is is killing bourbon. It's really killing bourbon. And and I, I don't know the answer to it, but for from that perspective, in my eyes, it is broken. I feel like we're at a time when you find a band that plays in your local coffee shop, and you're like, "Yeah, I really like them." Quilt. I'm gonna follow. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna follow them, and then then you realize they're opening up for a big band. You're like, "Oh, cool! I'm gonna go see them in concert," and then you realize they're now on tour and they're headlining, and you're like, "Well, I just lost." And then they win a Grammy and you're like, I don't like them. Yeah, I don't like them anymore. They're too popular. And I think that's kind of like where we are with, with bourbon. And, you know, some of us that have been in a while, while you, you talk to some people that have been longer than us and yeah, they've moved on to their spirits and kind of like that. And it is kind of unfortunate when we think about it because everyday shelf items that were Eagle Rare, that are Blanton's, like they're really not shelf items anymore. People are turning them into modern day trophies and you do see people lining up just for bottles of what we would consider regular shelf items. Now we know that Buffalo Trace is, is pretty highly sought after in just regards of everything that they're cranking out. And, you know, we can give theories on, on why that, but I kind of want to move on to a little bit is, do we feel that today's consumers are more educated now than they ever have been? Yes, uh, I do a thousand percent. Uh, one, one thing I have noticed last year, I, I did, uh, in the last year, I've done probably virtual tastings for probably around 50,000 people. And those are private virtual tastings where people book me or it's in person and I'm, I'm in front of an audience and educating them. And when I started doing this at the Kentucky Derby Museum in 2013, and I would have 500 to 1,500 people there doing these education processes... Ever, the number one question, well, I thought bourbon had to be made in Kentucky. <laughs> I don't get that question anymore. And I don't get the question anymore, is Jack Daniels uh, bourbon anymore? I mean, I, it happens. I do get it. But it's no longer a top five question. Now they know the brands. They know the brands. And they even know about MGP. And these are not, uh, an example is I just did a tasting for um, the athletic trainers for the NHL, like they have a, they have a, uh, specialized, uh, trade association and almost every single one of them knew the basics of bourbon. And it was, it was very impressive to me because these are not people that I, I was, I was assuming they would be novice. Maybe they'd be drinkers, but I didn't think they would know, know what still proof was and stuff, but they knew those things. And I think all the tourism and all the people that I've touched, uh, all the people that have come through the bourbon trail, those people come out of those facilities and they are instant experts to, and they, and they influence the people they work with when they're at family gatherings and everything. The education right now for the basic consumer, I would say is probably higher, you know, now than any time in whiskey history, probably not still not a wine level, but very high. So I'll, I'll, yeah. throw, I'll throw another curveball at you, though. If the, if the education level is so high, why are people still standing in line for Blanton's? That, that's what I would say. Probably the most people have been educated ever, but it's still not enough. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, 
you know, I can't tell many times anywhere I go and, and it's so awkward to tell people, I was telling Kenny this the other day, like telling people what I do, <laughs> you know, with recording a podcast, doing a brand, this and that. But every time that they, they always bring up, man, I had a shot to get Blanton's other day or I had to get, you know, the, the, you know, thing that everybody else wants. And they're like, well, why do you like that? Or, you know, why, why do you think that's special versus this or that? And a lot of people, you know, I'm amazed, like my neighbor just moved here from California and, you know, he's goes, goes to total wine and they're pushing him on black Ridge. And he's like, I really like this, you know? And, and then, and he goes to Costco and he's like, I, I really like the Kirkland's one too. And I go, well, no shit. They're the same damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's made by Barton, you know, Sazerac owns them and they, they're a contract distiller. And they're like, oh, they're like, holy shit. You, you serious? You know? And there, there's still so much education. See, that's, that's a PhD level education in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah, sure. Hey, the, the whole Blanton's thing, I, I think we, it's the same reason why the Dallas Cowboys are America's team. You know, there's just, there's just some things that feel that just carry on and they don't make any sense. You know, Dallas Cowboys haven't won a Super Bowl since the nineties. They stink. Hopefully they have a good year for them, but they Blanton's. Just, no no it, offense, Dallas Bourbon Club. Yeah. <laughs> sorry about, sorry about that, Brian. Uh, but you know, Blanton's just has that, just has that look and feel. I mean, it does. It, it just, it just feels like Kentucky, but at the same time too, if there's a bottle there, it's SRP and it's in the store and I'm walking by, am I buying it? Probably, you know, am I going to, if I have the option to have a Blanton's barrel pick, I'm going to take it. Oh, of course. I mean, we fell in that. We were at Buffalo Trace and they're like, we got Blanton's today and it's in a special derby bottle. And, we're like, and they're oh, in. Right. Yeah, I know. And I we, so. and we, I like, I, I felt the need to say, no, I don't really want it. But I was like, well, I mean, don't want part of me, yeah, so, hey, hey, we don't want but part of me is like, well, I mean, you just can't say no. Darren is why people stand in line for Blanton's. We just answered our own question. Same thing for Bourbon and Beyond. When we had a opportunity to get a Blanton's bottle, uh, Blanton's, you know, for Bourbon and Beyond, you know, we jumped on that like that. So that's why. It's, 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 and I've been, I've thought about this a lot. It's like, okay. And it sucks for us early adopters, you know, who were gravitated towards this early on and when it was just starting to get popular and we had great access to all this stuff. And it sucks right now because we don't want to camp for blends. We don't want to, even the or wellers or anything, you know, special release, but it's like, all right, is what we're going through necessary? And then we'll get back to what we were used to, you know, here. Did we, did we have to go through this necessary evil of growing pains to get to where, yes, everything's back to us, you know, eventually? Because if not, maybe it, you know, it just would never have gotten what I, you know maybe would just it would always be rare and we would always have to it, I, I brought this up before in past episodes but what we always focus on buffalo trace and the reason why is because buffalo trace has mastered how to do releases they have mastered how to break out a uh you know make the bottles special and no other distillery does a good job at that and i and i think you know and they also have great bourbon too let's not they yes they do right at that part they, you know what I'll push back a little bit. They do have good bourbon, but if Jim Beam would uh, would come out with a, something similar to the Antique Collection and give us some 12-year-old Maker's Mark cash drink or something like that, go toe-to-toe. Give me uh, you know, something from uh, you know some of those older rides that they have. It would go toe-to-toe with, the, with Buffalo Chase Antique Collection. If Heaven Hill uh, would have, um, would maybe do the same, but focus a little bit more on... On the Elijah Craig 18-year-old, don't go past 18, but stay, you know, between 12 and 18 years old. Now, I think we, you know, we would see a very similar competitor to Pappy. 
Um, and But the other companies that I'm mentioning here, they're really big into volume. They're big into volume and they're big in like those enormous case sales. Sazerac is big into volume on their Wheatley Vodka, on their Fireball, uh, but they are not in volume when it comes to their their bourbon. They're very laser focused yeah. on that being super high quality. Yeah, I was reading about one of Mark Brown's newsletters recently, and they were talking about how Evan Williams is the fastest growing bourbon brand in the world. And, you know, to do that, that's it at the expense of all your Elijah Craig, your Henry McInnes, your, you know, your yeah. hyper age stuff, your rare stuff. You know, it's like if you're going to focus on your volume, you're going to sacrifice you know, your limited release stuff. And I, th I think maybe the problem is people are so focused on limited release stuff. That's why maybe they feel like there's a consumer problem. Whereas reality, there's still a lot of great <laughs> products on the shelf that, you know, are 25, 35 bucks. You know? There's a lot of great stuff on the shelf at 25, 35 bucks. And, and, you know, Evan Williams is right there in the thick of it. That bottom bond is really good. But um, when it comes down to it, you know, if you're a company, you want to make some money. And that's how you make money in this business is volume. Fred, you put, make a very good point is that they are laser focused in what they do. And, and they do a fantastic job of continually putting out press releases, even if it's just minor variation changes of what they are doing to their product. And who does that get the attention of? Well, if you're listening to this podcast and definitely the people that are sitting around me right now, like we would probably be considered the one percenters of bourbon. Yeah. We are the people that, that care, that pay attention to what's going on. The other 98%, 99% of the population, they don't, they don't care. They don't care. They'll go to the store and they'll pick up a regular bottle of Elijah Craig. They're not going and they, they've got to chase down a bottle of Weller 107. They don't, they don't care about that, yeah, right? I mean, it's, it's a little bit different, you know, when we think about it. So yeah, if you're listening to this podcast, you are one of the, the very few people that this is actually speaking towards and that it's going to. Mm -hmm. Now, when we try to think about, okay, the other 99% of the population out there and you know, we talk about, yes, we are in a very educated market right now. How do we educate the other people? Like, how do we make them more aware of, you know, when they show up, they don't have to show up for Blanton's. Like, how do we, how do we educate those people that are either working in the stores or, or anything like that to say, like, there's, there's other options out there. Go get yourself a bottle of Russell's Reserve. Go get yourself yeah, something Yeah. And like never this. forget too, that half the country does not drink. So when we really, when we kind of like open up like, uh, the population here, you know, I've, there's about there's about eight million verified you know bourbon drinkers who are willing to listen to a podcast or read a magazine article and get educated. So eight millions, that's a good number, you know. But this is a big country, yeah. and eight million is a fraction of that. Uh, and getting those the the problem the problem that stands in the way with the other ninety nine percent of the people getting educated are the whiskey brands and their marketing people who don't give two flips about um, actual education, what they're trying to do is sell that bottle. And you want to sell that story so hard about how good the proofing water is and the recipe and the yeast. And they sell it so hard and that's all they care about is moving that product because that's what their bonus is based on. That's what their uh, 401k is based on. It's everything. They do not care about educating the category. They want to move that that bottle. Well, yeah, and two, they're also they they're not just the, these companies aren't just bourbon brands. They have a, a whole wide portfolio of other spirits that True. they're they're yep. trying to push and trying to sell. And so it's like, okay, how can we grow our business as a whole, not just bourbon? Bourbon's on fire now, but it wasn't you know years ago. So vodka was the focus, you know. And it's like, 
So they're they're all chasing, just chasing the shiny red ball. Yeah, yeah, they're just ch- chasing. And back, you know, five six years ago, you used to have the master stiller go and do talks at Liquor Barn down the road and educate consumers. And there's not really that much anymore. I it's remember, like, like I remember a, Jimmy Russell handing out little uh, thumb th- thimbles <laughs> of, <laughs> of wild turkey. At liquor bar, hey Fred, here's some uh, here's some wild turkey. I was like, why don't you have regular glasses? This is all they give me, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But now you're leaning on a sales rep at a liquor store to yeah. educate you, and they're incentivized by other things. And so it's like you got to look at the incentives to what people are getting educated on. And and this is and probably you follow it. It's not to bourbon. No, but this is why we are powerful. When I say we, I'm talking about everybody listening to this podcast. We are a loud, very vocal community in bourbon. And there's a reason why this article came out and said, asking the question, is bourbon broken? It's be- the reason why bourbon will always get the attention of the Pernod Ricards, of the Moet Hennessy's, of the Brown Foreman's, you know, these large parent companies is because we won't shut up. <laughs> we love to complain. And this is the whole fact we're here talking about this. Whiskey media has become powerful, you know. I mean, it, it's it's big, and and beyond that, uh, you know, Reddit's over a hundred thousand, you know, probably close to two hundred thousand, uh, you know, subscribers. Vodka doesn't have that, it, you know. Uh, cognac, I don't think has that. I mean, we have a very loyal, willing to like uh, learn audience. Uh, that will be pulling through, much like how bourbon came back. Bourbon didn't come back because of the uh, the smart marketing initiatives by uh, Beam or somebody. It came because you know you had a handful of people in those organizations who were listening to consumers uh, who were traveling to Kentucky, and they would continue to try to feed those consumers. That's what's happening now: is that consumers are telling these companies what they want, and the companies are reacting. The companies are not pushing this on it; we are pulling it. And the three of us, well, you guys have a brand, so you don't count. I'm a, I'm a consumer, but uh, at, at the end of the day, it really it really does matter uh, about growing that eight million. In my opinion, when I said the eight million, that's something that I was able to when we started Bourbon Plus, we were able to like dice, look at like all the people who drink and all the people who will like be willing to read or uh, listen to something. So there are eight million people right now who are willing to learn about bourbon um that's statistically verified so how do we grow that there's eight million and they're you know and a special release is only ten thousand. <laughs> you know you do the math really quick that that but that's a, a that's one side of it yeah you know sure the other side is like well what's this over here oh is it pursuit united oh i've not had that let me let me check this out. I wish we could. Well, I, want, I want to i want to hear some more of those stories if they ever <laughs> surface yeah that, that's news to me <laughs> You know, and Ryan, you'd mentioned earlier about social media, and I think this is definitely one thing to to talk talk about of of how the consumer is is feeding this animal too, is because Facebook kind of built and killed bourbon all at the same exact time. It did. When I remember probably joining some of the Facebook groups back in 2014, there was one with an acronym of uh, SWT for anybody out there has been been around oh, for a that while. Was a good one. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think that's when I realized that there was so much more for me to be educated on. I mean, I used to see people, you know, selling bottles of Willett Family Estate. I'm like, where do they get these things? I had no idea I could drive an hour and a half down the road. Like this, this was like a whole thing that I was learning. I mean, do you all remember some of your earlier thoughts of like what this was going to open? Because social media and Facebook has played a critical role in bourbon culture now. 
If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Social media and Facebook has played a critical role in bourbon culture now. And so when you all first started seeing these groups, like, were you thinking like, wow, there's some things I had to learn or this is just going to be bad news in the end? Like, where were your thoughts? Well, very, when they first came out, would we say 2010 to 2013? That's usually, I mean, that's, that's kind of like the, the rise of, okay, yeah, I joined like around two, 2013, 2014 time. Frame. So uh, obviously, so when these were coming on, you know, my, um, I'd already been in the business for a good six years or so. I remember seeing like how people were commenting about stuff and you know, like how judgmental they were on like uh, any kind of contract or distilled or sourced whiskey. And then it was like the whole state of distillation thing kind of coming on and everyone's like, Burr! and what I noticed was my first thought was this is like a protection area uh, for, for consumers and it's calling out. And it's basically uh, Chuck Cowdery, you know, the godfather of, of American whiskey writing myself and a few other people would, you know, we would do stories on lawsuits and call people out for not doing the uh, state of distillation. We put 40 hours into an article that would be very thorough and facts. And what I noticed is, is like people just got on there and, and chimed off something. I was like, you don't, you don't have any proof of that. And you don't know that's true. And that's a lie. You don't know that. And I saw, what I saw is I saw a lot of people being very passionate about it, whether they were right or wrong. There was a little fire kind of being created in uh, in Facebook, and it was fun. It was fun to follow, and I love. I miss. I miss the uh, the uh, seeing the old bottles pop up. You know, that was my favorite thing was to see the old bottles because you know I have all this history on them, and I knew who would own them and and, and where they'd come from. And sometimes I get tagged to to like uh, help explain what a bottle was and. I miss those days, and it's I can't be in those forums anymore anyway. But, but there was something special about about that. And early on, it it was it was it was mostly collegial, but any kind of like uh, 
uh, negative energy was always put toward, you know, a brand trying to deceive consumers. So that's how I looked at the uh, Facebook groups very early on. Yeah, for for me, it was uh, <laughs> it was eye opening because you're like, well, wait a minute, people care about this, you know, these brands that I can get every day, <laughs> you know, and then two for me, it was enlightening the, you know, brands I never would have given two thoughts like old scout or uh okay uh um you know these mgp source brands at 10 to 13 year old whiskey that you're like uh you know it's all for me you know i'm not gonna you know mess with that it's <laughs> and then boy was i stupid but um <laughs> but to the dusty factor like i you know i wouldn't have known about dusty's if it wasn't for those face strong water trading or shoot i shouldn't have said it but it's okay it's, it's, it's all uh, it's completely gone you, now. i would never i wouldn't have known about it or the history of these bottles or got to try any of them I, we bought i bought a lot of stuff on there and uh traded a lot it was a <laughs> and I, I missed the. i hate to say it, but i missed those lotteries and all that stuff i, I really enjoyed those just because you had these unicorn crazy bottles that maybe I have a chance, a 35 and one chance to win it, you know, and I never won, but uh, it was always like, it was like going to the casino. And and then you were learning about the bottles too, like why they were special. And same thing too. I mean, I, I grew up around Willet and know the Colesveen family too, but it's like, well, wait a minute, they, they're just that distillery up on the hill, you know, why, why is their stuff so, you know, why was that so special? And then you come to find out, oh, it's all Stitzel Weller and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, you know, I had distiller stuff that's old and these rise, you know, magical rye bottles that got, you know, the history behind all that. So it was, it was definitely, it was, it was cool. And what? I miss all that. And that's, this is kind of what it goes to like, say that like if Facebook built bourbon, like this, what started building a community around it, it was to the point where we had friends that were starting in bourbon, like, here, let me add you to these Facebook groups. And then you got to the point where, I mean, the first episode of Bourbon Pursuit that we ever recorded, Ryan, we sat together and I talked about how I created a, a Facebook messenger group and we would go and we would tell each other tips about, you know, where you find things. And then it became these like regional groups. And like the biggest one that came in Louisville was, you know, Louisville Bourbon Hounds and now, right. now rest in peace in that group. And, you know, it skyrocketed from just a couple hundred people to like over 15 or 25,000 members at, was at that one Owen, point. Owen's group? It was, it yeah. was a long okay. time ago. And that just amplified, I think, the consumer problem because now nobody could even get anything, even if you went to your store every single day. But it also brought about a new kind of consumer that I think most of us didn't really like to see. And that's the one that just relies on others too much of people that would just take pictures of saying, look at a store, like, what's good here? Facebook built bourbon up so much that it kind of gave people an easy out on when to do their yeah. own research. Yeah. It did, and uh, what we've learned is people don't know how to use the search button. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know that, that is true. That was one of the thing. One of the things that I've I learned uh, is that in the mods, the moderators, uh, they love uh, pointing out use the search button. So that became a kind of comical. Yeah, for me. And I remember those search groups, and they were great at first. And then you're like, wait a minute, I'm cannibalizing myself here. <laughs> you know, yeah. and like it's kind of. Uh, you know, and you cr started creating your own like group inside of each one of these that they would go right. and they would post something and then they wouldn't tell you exactly where they got it from. And it, it defeated the whole purpose of what some of these things were about at first. Yeah, I remember I sent you a message one time, Party Mart, like it, it was like their derby where they released a small amount of Van Winkle. Every spring, and by the way. Every spring. This, this so I go to Party spring, Mart, I'm like, Van Winkle like you got anything? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I got some. And it gives me a 12 year. And I was like, that's why I sent a message. Can you like, 
She's got a 12 year party mark. He goes, and they give him a 20. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, what wow. the fuck? You owe me that 20. I think it's also because I had my mustache at the time. And I'm, me and this guy, we had this like this beard connection going on. Yeah, I'm going to take a 20 <laughs> when I leave here today. But I mean, this also, like I said, it grew to the point where it kind of like a little bit backfired on itself. And there was no ability for people to go hunt bottles. And that's, I think that kind of killed hunting for a lot of people as well. Yeah. Cause it gave a, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of friends that are not as into bourbon as us, but they're still into it. Mm -hmm. And, but they're like, but they're just educated enough to where they're, you know, consuming all the good bottles, you know, taking all the good bottles off the shelves. And or when they come to our house or when they come to our house, we teach them about it. And then they become, you know, part of the problem. But, you know, it's, I think, I think in the end, overall, this will be a good thing. Uh, but now we're in that, we're in the dip, you know, it's like, we're, it's definitely a struggle, you know, as an early adopter, because you've seen so much taking away from you, but I, I think it'll be better in the long term for us. You know, the other thing is, let's talk about Instagram a little bit. So Instagram is full of people that just take pictures of, of full bottles and they put them out there. And I don't know if that helps even fuel this anymore because granted, we're problem problem too. We get we get media samples sent to us and we are we're not obligated, but we are encouraged to help, you know, help spread the word of these new releases and what we're tasting and and that helps build the hype machine behind it. So people will run out and want to go get it. And, you know, granted, we have, you know, you know, our accounts are around like fifty thousand. There's some that are over a hundred thousand people. And there's people that just take pictures and repost stuff of, you know, people finding stuff at local stores of a Costco find. Are we feeding the animal too much here when we're, when we're doing this? Yes. But I mean, it's like, okay, what's our end goal here? Do we want to grow the category or do we just want it to be ho-hum so we all have bottles? And to me, I want to grow the category and keep it growing. Cause I think just in the past, say five, six years, it's changed dramatically, even from 10 to 12 years ago. Um, bourbon has become, you know, rare bottles to this and that, but now it's turned into like this experience visitor experience thing and where you're going to distilleries and you're spending whole days and you're going to these great restaurants, you know, in Bardstown or Frankfurt or wherever. And it's like, okay, do we want this to be as renowned as Napa or Sonoma? Do we want to be as big as wine? And I do. And I think that we have to do this stuff to keep it growing. Uh, I mean, at, that's going to be at the expense of us, you know, in the short term. But I think long term, it'll come back around. If we can, if we continue to push and grow the product and category now, I think it'll be better for us long term. So, I, you know, you all brought up the the minic effect earlier, and I, I usually, I, I really very rarely uh, talk about this, but you know, it is true that in my career, when I have said something is good, it it, it sells out. That that does happen. And I've seen some things about me uh, saying like, I do it on purpose, whatever. I love what I do. I'm never going to apologize for, you know, sipping whiskey for a living. I make, I make, I earn my living drinking whiskey and people pay to bring me into parties to drink whiskey with them. And I am never going to apologize for that. I have, I have a, uh, the dream job. Maybe my liver would disagree, but <laughs> I love what I do. I absolutely love it. I love the history behind it. I love the the tasting process of it, of every competition I've ever been a part of, I'm proud of. And and like I understand that, you know, the media samples and all that as part of I try not to have media samples. I try to buy the stuff that I'm reviewing, even though I have a constant disclaimer 
in on my channel or wherever I'm at or on my website um, that they're media samples, you know, just because I can't keep track of how much stuff I have and if whether it's a media sampler, I bought it. But I, I think that it's just, it's just like being a sports reporter. If you're the top sports reporter, you're going to the Super Bowl or the Kentucky Derby and you're not paying and you're getting put up. And you're getting fed for free and all these kinds of things. Uh, this is this is what it's like to be a professional uh, spirits media. And you know what? Not everybody can do it. I've seen so many people fall out because they drink too much or they piss off the wrong people or they don't have uh, the wherewithal to figure out how to make a living in it. Uh, and it's a... Uh, it is it is part of the process. So that hype machine and like what is Instagram to that, I look at what I do and what any reviewer does very differently than taking a bottle photo. You know, that is a that's part of the lifestyle. But like reviews, if somebody is giving positive reviews because they're getting samples and just so they can keep getting the, the sample train, then you know what? That's going to show in your views and people aren't going to listen to you or watch you or read you. But if you're honest and, you know, you get a shit whiskey, um, you need to say it. You know, you need to say it in your own words, however it is. Um, you know, for a long time when I was with Whiskey Advocate, I was under certain uh, restrictions with what I could, you know, how I could score something. I mean, you have to follow however, what, however you're scoring something. I would say... It would go good in a cocktail, and people would figure that out. <laughs> You're like, yeah, we can read between the lines on this. Yeah. One. Now, Fred, I guess another question for you is: when you are doing reviews and you're doing these different things, do you find it more satisfying when you can find a hidden gem of a distillery that's going to be a sh everyday shelf item versus like, oh, here's the next BTAC release. Let's go ahead and let's get this review out there. Like, what what is yeah? The, I, what, what gets I, your uh, heart pumping there? I get uh, my favorite things to uh, review are. Well, I'll review anything. And I think that's probably, I, I'm at a point in my career where I really do think I should stop, you know, tasting some of the new stuff that's coming out that I, I know is going to be bad. I, I, I'm just, it, sometimes it takes my palate two or three days to recover from something that's bad. <laughs> and, um, and that's true. I'm thinking about having someone come in and like, oh, welcome to the team. You are drinking uh, batch 60, one. 60 from, day old. Yeah. From 60 day old still, <laughs> distillery. Uh, but I, I think my favorite thing to find that I get really excited about would be the smaller distillers when, when they've got something in, in the game. When I did that Pappy versus the field and you stocked me with all the blind samples yeah. and, you, and you put in Woodenville, that was probably the most exciting discovery, uh, that I had, uh, when I did that. Another one, um, I put the Bradshaw bourbon in a blind tasting and it and it did it took second in a pretty decent field of of tasters, and so like I like getting things that surprise me, but I like doing it blindly. I don't like tasting something and knowing what it is, uh, and giving a review that way. I do it as blind as much as I can. So that, those are two examples I can think of. So I'm, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit to uh, to to look at one more thing that had Brent had actually written in this article, and. That's talking about consumers, how they are getting smarter, but they're getting smarter to the point where they're chasing bottles that have dump dates to commemorate a birthday, a child's birthday, an anniversary, whatever it is that yeah. makes that bottle you not know, seem special in their eyes or anything like that. 
does this make them part of the problem? Is this why bourbon's broken too? Or is this just a novelty? It's it's tough because because with that it's it, there's a lot of enthusiasm and passion you know and it, to to care about that stuff that means you care uh you know somewhat yeah. about the 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 product or the the category but it is kind of annoying too because you're like well I mean I've had plenty of four roses barrels that weren't tier six and uh, you just, know they're, they're pretty damn they're good. pretty damn good you know or you know it's just you know all or the batch numbers or this of stag juniors like you got to get these batch certain batches now and you're like well, i mean it's pretty good as you know <laughs> has it's been pretty good for a while you know and but I, I get it and that and once again that's why bourbon is the perfect product because you can there's something about it that you can say is rare and unique about this batch or that barrel or this tier or that facing warehouse or that warehouse camp nelson versus Tyrone or whatever, you know, there's all these little, cause there's so much, there's, there's so many factors in bourbon that contribute to what it is the finished product and the, the glass. You can pick any one of those and make it unique. And so it's, it's cool, but it's also a little annoying. Yeah. But I don't know. I, you know, I remember, um, a gentleman reached out to me on uh, Instagram. His, um, his, his wife had passed away and her name, uh, was, uh, Dot. And uh, that was his her nickname. And he reached out to me. He's like, Fred, um, I need help finding Dot's batch of bookers. Is there any way you can help me? So I put it out on Instagram and he, within like five minutes to 25 minutes, he had a couple people willing to send him a bottle. And to this day, he like tags me in the, in the bottle when he's, when he's tasting it. And I, and I, and I think there's something about, you know, the human spirit of like, we like remembering incredible moments, like I, and, and, and people in our lives. Like anytime I see an old Oscar Pepper, I buy it, uh, because my son's name is Oscar and, and it just, I buy Oscar sardines for the same reason. There's just, <laughs> there's just, there's just something special to me, uh, about my son's name and same with, with. My other son, Julian, who, by the way, is not named after Julian Van Winkle. Uh, he's just named Julian. Um, but uh, it, 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 there is something about bourbon that taps into that emotional spirit of, of who we are. And so I, there's a little bit of a, a part, just kind of like, let's move past that one. You know, let's not, let's not judge people for, uh, for wanting to get... Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally okay with the connection, and I totally agree. There's, you know, that's why I'm so pissed at people. I'm, I'm really pissed at this sticker thing, you know, people trying to take away stickers because this is a special moment in somebody's life that exactly. they have waited for. And I've had, had friends that had single barrel picks that a friend had passed away, and they put them on the bottle to commemorate their friend. And it's like, why would you take that away from someone? You know, someone has that deep of a connection with your brand and that person. And you want to take that away from people, and and I'm okay with that. I, I, what I, I'm annoyed by is the the nuances of tears and you know whatever. If you're getting a dump date because it's a childhood birth, by all means. But if you're doing it just because that dump date's special, uh, 
go to the different update. It, there's, it's the, the sun was facing towards the north yeah. side at if, 7 a.m. If Oklahoma State ever wins a national championship in football, I'm getting a bottle of Blanton's that was dumped that day. Just saying. And if they <laughs> and if they don't, you're going to find the DeLorean and go back and we're going to find it. a goddamn yeah. barrel. We're well, gonna... by the way, they're, they're not going to win a national championship <laughs> in my lifetime. Um, I mean, now that we're now that you can play, pay players, I mean, it's going to be like a like a line to Texas and Alabama. <laughs> Alabama. <sighs> so, kind of like the last thing to to try to find a, a silver lining here is is let's say we're let's say we're talking to not our regular podcast listeners here, and this is going to be for the general public or general audience out here, the ones that that do stand in line for Blands because they that's what they think is the best. What advice would you give a consumer about changing their habits of of where they should spend their money? Oh, I mean, so I'll just go from a price point. You know, if they're if they're spending what fifty, sixty dollars on Blanton's, you know, I'd say, hey, go go see what our buddies in New Riff or Wilderness Trail are doing. You know, they're a newer distillery. You know, see what they're. I think I had a Wilderness Trail pick this weekend at a local restaurant, and I was blown away. I was like, oh my gosh, it's you know a five year old barrel, and it was. I think it was the weeded bourbon and it was just mind-blowingly good. Um, it's just like, try something different. You know, I think, you know, not that Blance is bad, but I think you're going to find some nuance and different flavors in these other bottles at that price point. Um, you know, same thing. You could sit them down just like a Four Roses small batch or single barrel, you know, that's got great amount of complexity and flavor at that price range. Um, but yeah, I don't. I, but it's hard because the packaging is not as sexy as the the perfume bottle and whatnot. But uh, so, so you're saying we need to give more advice to producers out there to create better glass? Is that what it the, is? The, <laughs> you know, I would say I would say look, it? you know, there's th- these are your if you okay, you love Kentucky bourbon, okay, great. Well, there's basically what five big players in the field. Go spend. Say you're going to spend thirty dollars at each distillery. Go spend. Do that. And get a wide array of products from each distillery and find what you like, you know, not just because it's Blanton's, you know, and I think, and do it blindly and then say, okay, well, in the blind taste test, I really liked Elijah Creek or I like Four Roses or this, you know, and then you can say, I'm buying this because I truly like it, not because somebody said I should like it. And I think even that goes to your point is you should still go get that bottle of Blanton's and you should still do that and yes. see if you still like that bottle. Of yeah. And throw it in the blind and, and maybe Blanton's wins. And if it does, then great you know it's great bourbon you know good but it's not the only option out there so here's where i'm going to go with it and this is going to be um i i like people to find their their own way so before before you buy a book before you listen to a podcast before you read a magazine article or do a google do what bourbon is all about and find some friends that are on the same journey as you Go to a restaurant with a decent bourbon selection. I would, if you're in Kentucky, I'd say Bourbon's Bistro or Silver Dollar, two excellent places. Sit down over over a month and have uh, go to dinner together and have two bourbons with each meal. And like whether, you know, have it and taste it with your friends, talk about it and, and talk to uh, the server or the bartender and learn from them because... Bourbon is a communal, it's a social thing, and it, the the hunt is 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 an isolation. The the buying and tasting yourself is an isolation. And bourbon is always meant to be enjoyed. And I'll tell you, I've drank my share of bourbon by myself, but there's nothing like sipping with my buddies. You know, there's nothing like sipping with you guys. 
or you know being out on a boat with with my buddy uh you know mark in tennessee there's nothing like that um that you you just have you have to experience your friends with bourbon in order to really appreciate bourbon and that is how you go from uh being a hunter of blantons to a bourbon fan as you appreciate bourbon for what it is it's a conduit for friendships yeah, I can't tell me how many releases I have never drank by myself. But as soon as if somebody comes over, I'm like, please come try it because I am never going to drink this by myself. And that's yeah. the and that's the more rewarding part of this whole thing is, you know, people just getting into it. You can introduce them to something and and you have that connection. And it's it's, it's all about the memories for me. And that's what I love about this hobby and this career and this category is I I, I don't feel like this has ever happened when I've been to a winery or I've had, you know, high noons or, you know, yeah. we're not, we're not sitting there sharing. Have you tried the mango high noon yet? <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, can wait till you come over, you know, but uh, no, it, it all comes back to connection community. And that's what it's, we want this whole community to grow, not just be bottle chasers and selfishly hoarding everything for ourselves. Right. So I think that's going to put a wrap on part one of Is Bourbon Broken? Looking at the consumer. So guys, thank you so much for- This was a deep one, huh? It did. It did. And I think this is going to go deep as we as we continue going oh, here. So, we get some more caffeine. Yes. So Lauren, you'll be editing a lot. <laughs> She'll love it. But make sure you follow us on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And also follow our friend, Fred Minnick over here. Subscribe to his YouTube channel and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Stay tuned for next week on the next episode in our series where we're going to look at the secondary market. Mm -hmm. With that, cheers, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Vodka sucks. Mm -hmm.